Assalamu alaikum. I'm Khalil Alika. And I'm Zahir Parker. And welcome to AccidentalMuslims.com. So, AccidentalMuslims.com is a, a movement, a platform where we showcase present and future leaders to help us live with purpose. And we believe that everybody has a story to tell. This podcast hopes to add value. So, welcome and enjoy. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And Amir, thanks for joining us as well. Thank you so much, guys. Let's start. Who is Yusuf Omar? Oh my God, the existential question. Yusuf Omar is a mojo, a mobile journalist. I use my phone to shoot, edit, and produce content. I use spectacles, like these wearable cameras that I'm wearing right now to produce content. I use drones. I use whatever I have access to, but it's really this idea of this one woman or one man band storyteller being able to create content on their own. Um, and now increasingly as the co-founder of Hashtag Our Stories, the ability to train and empower thousands of people around the world to also create meaningful stories. So how did it all start? I'm sure in school. Well, how, how was you assuming in school? Let's go back to that. I was horrendous in school. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> not just the, the old cliche, I really did. I struggled in, in primary school. I struggled to read until very late. I was failing miserably. I, 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 I didn't perform well in school. It was so bad that there was an incident where Mrs. Tipper, I think it was, uh, in front of all of the other mums when we were like nine or 10 years old, had to call my mum in the, in the, in the um, playground as they were picking us up from school and say, Yusuf's not coping. You've got to send him to a special school. He's not uh, keeping up with the class. Uh, so I struggled in school a lot. Um, in university, I kind of blossomed. Did you study? I was born in the UK, uh, in England. When I was 14, I moved to Australia. Um, manic parents that wanted to see the world. When I was 21, I, I moved to South Africa and, and the US and ended up living in India. Um, studied at uh, Griffith University in Australia, California State University in Long Beach, California, and Rhodes University in South Africa. And in university, I eventually, after doing an undergrad in marketing and management, I found my passion and my love for journalism at Rhodes University. And it was like the perfect job for me. I got to travel the world, I got to meet people, and I got to go on some pretty crazy adventures. You call yourself a mojo. Did you coin that term? No, mojo is a, is a term used by many people that they were a mobile journalist. But I did start experimenting in this area very early, before it even had a name. In 2010, I wanted to be a foreign correspondent, uh, going back almost nine and a bit years ago. I wanted to tell stories of wars and natural disasters and travel the world and tell interesting stories. And every newsroom I went to to tell these, to, to pitch this idea that I wanted to travel, they said, we don't have budget for you. You're some young schmuck. You got no experience. So in 2010, I started hitchhiking, just catching rides, putting my thumb to the wind. And I hitchhiked a long way. I hitchhiked from Durban to Damascus. From South Africa all the way to Syria, 12,000 kilometers. Only in China. Yeah, just catching rides, sleeping at mosques and churches and on park benches and going on this crazy adventure uh, alone up all these countries and meeting amazing people and learning these skills, learning to shoot photos and videos and write and like this full ecosystem. And at the end of that journey, I ended up in Egypt by complete, as they call it in South Africa, fluke uh, <laughs> during the first Arab Spring. Oh, as Egypt nice. was uprising and, and I was at the right place at the wrong time and ended up capturing some really interesting stories. Uh, and that was kind of one of my first big breaks into journalism. Um, and from there, it was just like tons more amazing places to be in, witnessing some of the best and worst of humanity. Going to Egypt, 
uh, sorry, going to Syria, uh, going to Congo, for example. 2012, I went to Congo. Uh, there was an ammunition depot. You know where they keep weapons in the middle of civil populations in case there's an uprising. So the army have access to these weapons. Imagine this big warehouse full of tanks and artillery and mortar and rockets, and it catches on fire. And for three days, it's like the biggest fireworks display you've ever seen because all this weapons in, in this big warehouse. And it flattened everything few kilometers in every direction and, and then I started to experiment with that idea of strapping cameras to my head so I used to wear a, a GoPro on my head all the time right on my forehead wherever I looked there's a big heavy camera uh, 2014 I went to Syria Syrian civil war started I was smuggled in with the uh, gift of the givers and a bunch of surgeons that were building a hospital in Darkush province um, had all the fancy equipments the big microphone the lights the cameras but we still resorted to using the mobile phone because it was fast and intimate Ended up moving to India, worked at the Hindustan Times, trained up 750 people across 27 offices to tell stories with their phones. Uh, incredible journey. Started experimenting there with uh, Snapchat face filters. You know, those funny face filters that we wear, like doggy tongue and all that kind of stuff uh, on Instagram and on Snapchat. Being able to use those to hide the faces of rape survivors but, so you could empower them to share their stories. You could still see their eyes, their mouths, their expressions, but... As an audience, uh, we got to relate to them, and as them, they got to be empowered to tell their stories. From there, I moved to CNN in London. Uh, I was a senior social media reporter, and I was, you know, traveling and telling stories. And that was my dream job to work for CNN. Uh, but it wasn't quite what I wanted. I, I saw an enormous opportunity to empower communities around the world to tell their own stories, to launch a global news network of people with mobile phones and journalists curating that content. And in October of 2017, we started Hashtag Our Stories with my wife and co-founder Samaya. Amazing. Wow. Guys on, on Instagram, if you have any questions, please. Yeah, I'm, please, I'm, I'm, I'm watching the Instagram it. live as well. Just, just so I will uh, Let us know ask us anything. <clears throat> so it's fascinating stories. Hashtag our stories. Why? Why hashtag our stories? Why? Because you're using the. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing you're using that trend hashtag. The trend. Yeah, we, uh, hashtag our stories was uh, launched um, on the 10 year anniversary of the hashtag. Oh, so okay. the hashtag was quite a, a moment in terms of like unifying people around common themes and trends and topics. So it's kind of like being on the pulse of what's happening right now. And the Our story side is the communal nature of the storytelling that we do. Any video that we produce, sometimes we'll have between 12 and 20 different people's voices in one story. Uh, so kind of cumulative, collective, collaborative storytelling is where we get the Our Stories idea from. So I know you're the co-founder of Hashtag Our Stories, like your, your wife is the, the other co-founder, Sumaya. Did you also have a similar passion? Or how did you guys meet? How did it all start? Um, my wife and co-founder Samaya was somebody I had a crush on my entire life. Okay. Uh, childhood friend, growing up in, she grew up in South Africa. I used to come in on holiday every year. I used to come in on holiday, but she didn't really like me for most of my existence. Yes. Um, she moved to Joburg. She had a high-flying job. She was at FNB. She was okay. building mobile world, banking yeah. products okay. across yeah. Africa. Ended up uh, running the Comrades Marathon, 90 kilometers, 50 miles. You were, me, me, uh, me. And along that way, I was running with my dad, and my dad had my mom helping out driving the car next to it. You know? Coming with the samosas yes, and the kajur. Yes, yes. And Samira, who was, you know, we kind of, was, we, we were starting to romance each other at the time. She started to, uh, she was driving as well with my mom and helping me out. And about halfway through, I saw my mom and dad helping each other out. And I was like, I want that. And I told my dad that at the end of the race, I'd propose to Samira. Seriously? And we still had about six hours of the race to go. And... 
my dad thought I was hallucinating or uh, <laughs> he prefers it yeah or dehydrated Did you say yes well I still had like six hours to convince my dad that I was, like, I was sober and sane and, and that this was a rationally well thought out idea something I'd been wanting to do my whole life uh, and then we talk about it for the next six or so hours and we get to the finish line and I, and I propose at the end of the comrades uh, and it's obviously all on video like most of my life um, and she actually she said I want to marry you but 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 I'm going to give you a 24-hour cooling-off period. So if you want to come to Makes me tomorrow and, and you still are feeling this way, then yeah, like, uh, let's do this. Uh, and I was feeling the same way the next day and I was already on my knees anyway, right? I was that tired. <laughs> so um, yeah, that, that's kind of how we, we, we got together. And, and she was the breadwinner for most of our relationships. Uh, I, I think often in our community and culture, there's this false notion that the man is the breadwinner but in reality Samaya paid the bills for almost all if not our entire relationship uh, and then launching hashtag our stories was the first chance we had to really work together where we could bring her product managerial operational uh, strategy side and my storytelling innovation uh, creative side and we could combine it and now she's the CEO she runs the business and I spend the money what are the elements of a good story that's a great question um for me, a good story in some respects hasn't changed from watching like film or books to social media, right? The ability to be engaging and relevant and, but yet there's some ingredients that are very specific make a good story on social media. And, and the two that I think I'd share most is suspense and engagement. A good story should have real suspense. A good story should keep you on the edge of your seat to find out what's going to happen next. A good story, if it has the ingredients of suspense, it has retention. Uh, if this is a good podcast, people will keep listening, not for the first minute, but for the entire 20 minutes or 30 minutes. And so a good story must have a sense of suspense where the audience feel that even the content creator doesn't know what's going to happen next. Like you didn't know doing this podcast and the people watching Instagram live that I was going to go blah, 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 blah. It's spontaneous and it's got suspense. And I think continuing that suspense, even in a podcast, I mean like, hey, Keep watching because Yusuf's going to talk about that time he did something ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, suspense is a crucial engagement a, a, a ingredient to storytelling. So suspense, suspense, suspense. And the other one is engagement. If you're on a social media landscape, the idea that this is no longer a one-way stream but a two-way conversation and creating content that is highly engaging in terms of comments, highly engaging in terms of interactivity, giving your audience the opportunity to determine what the next question is, giving your audience the opportunity to determine who the next interview is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if you are at the intersection of suspense and engagement, you find good storytelling. And it's the same for doing live. Yeah, very similar for doing live. And I, I'll just run you through um, some of the criteria for, like, uh, on uh, some of the criteria that determines what is a, a hashtag our story story. Yeah, yeah. One of the biggest um, learnings that we've had in the last year is really nailing down who we are and who we're not. If you don't do that, you get in a situation where as a content creator, you're doing every type of content. You're like, ah, today we're doing a story on gentrification and tomorrow we're doing a story on the local football game and the next day we're doing a piece on the best Buddha voice. And you're like everywhere and nowhere and you really need to be focused with your storytelling. So here's a couple questions that we ask our audience, our community when they're creating a story. And the first is relevance. Uh, why are you telling the story? So what? What's the so what to the story? What's the broader societal implication? Man breaks leg on this road. Interesting, but not really societally broad. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
500 people that have broken their leg on the same road. Here's why. That's suddenly got more relevance, right? It's got a broader theme. Knowledge. Uh, we like it to have that TIL moment. Today I learned. Uh, at the end of watching a piece of content, consuming a piece of content, people should come away having learned something. So really understanding in a piece of storytelling, what is that understanding? What is that informational nugget people are going to take away? Factual is the third one. All stories should be factual. They should be accurate. They should be well fact-checked. Unique. We do feature stories. We're not going to do a story on... Notre Dame Cathedral catching on fire. You'll watch BBC or CNN or Al Jazeera for that. We'll tell you the story about the person that's donated all the blankets to keep it warm afterwards. Um, really looking for those unique angles. Constructive is also interesting to us. We don't just want to focus on problems like, oh, this clinic's run out of tuberculosis medication. That's interesting and important, but we want to focus on the solutions. People who are finding answers to those problems is more interesting than, than often just focusing on the problem itself. And finally, unheard voices. We want to speak to people who have been spoken a lot about, but often not spoken to. Refugees are a community we speak a lot about, we don't often speak to. So relevance, knowledge, factual, unique, constructive, and unheard voices are the kind of criteria that we uh, fall back on when determining what is and isn't a hashtag our story story. We are invited to share our knowledge with often private organizations and conferences and then we use that to piggyback to then do stuff with communities. So we kind of, it's a Robin Hood model. You, you leapfrog off the clients that are bringing you in to give a talk or something and you are able to use that to then um, do some community good work. And it kind of goes back to like when you're a kid and people are like, what do you want to do when you finish school? And, and often in our communities, we are pushed into things that have the perception of being very lucrative. Oh, become an accountant, become a doctor, become a dentist, you'll make, a quick, you'll make money quickly. You can make money in anything. Uh, it's about getting to a place where you are highly respected in what you do, where you're at the height of your game. And then people will pay you to travel around the world to speak about it. And that's a really exciting position to be in. When you can travel and speak about what you love uh, and inspire for me, it's the greatest job in the world. What drives, like, what's, what's that fire? I think what drives all of us on some level is fulfilling our maximum human potential. The greatest risk and, and, and anxiety I see in young people today is that they know they're talented. They're often highly educated. Many of us have come from relatively privileged backgrounds and we fear that we're stuffing it up. Then, hey, I got given everything. I got given an education. My parents have got some income. I've got democratic freedom. And yet I haven't made it. I'm not having enough impact in the world. I'm not changing the world in, in, as much as I wanted to. I'm not feeling a sense of, of purpose and meaning. And I have the same anxieties. My anxieties are also, am I reaching my maximum human potential? Am I, uh, my God-given talents, am I using them to the best ability or am I wasting them? So that's what keeps me going. That drive to like uh, prove to myself that I'm being as efficient with my time on this earth as possible. Um... What drives me in a career sense or in hashtag our story sense is the lack of diversity in the media landscape. When you make look at the demographics of the world today and just take Muslims in particular, what's the Muslim population it's in excess of 2 billion people? So we make up uh, almost a third of humanity. Do we represent in the media to the same extent to the percentage of we are represented in terms of global population? Not even close. When you look at the film industry, music industry, the news, we're there for the wrong reasons, uh, books, entertainment, in every kind of media landscape, we are tragically uh, either underrepresented or grossly misrepresented. And the opportunity to turn that around or to be part of turning that around or to challenge people's prejudices and preconceptions and misconceptions and racism and bigotry 
That's a huge responsibility. And that's a responsibility that all of us have, especially those that have got platforms, that have built up social media audiences, that have an ear with the global um, economy, which is the internet. We have a responsibility to use our platforms, to educate, to inform, to counter what is a long-term and prolonged uh, sometimes deliberate and sometimes uh, undeliberate or innocent campaign to discredit uh, a large part of humanity which call themselves Muslim. It's about influencer marketing. Mm-hmm. I've been struggling with, with that for a couple of months now. What's your take on influencer marketing and are we in a bubble? Take, take me through that. So just to give you guys context, influencer marketing is the notion that a brand will work with an individual who has a critical amount of followers on a platform and will pay them to promote a product or service. So uh, Nivea face moisturizers will get a group of makeup influencers and say, hey, use this product and talk about it and, and, and you'll earn some revenue. In and of itself, I don't think it's a bad idea. I think that people trust people more than they trust brands. People trust me as a journalist. They trust Yusuf Omar more than they might trust an organization. They know me, they see me every day. So when I say something happens, they feel like they should leave it. Uh, and it's the same for brands and products, right? So it's kind of going back to that idea of like um, word of mouth and yeah. word of mouth being the influencer is more powerful than the brand trying to communicate something. Having said that, we've reached a landscape where a few things have happened. One, many people feel that the accounts that they follow have been watered down or exhausted or uh, the integrity of the content has been compromised by the volume of sponsored things that they're okay. having to do. And I think that influencers need to start treating their work like newsrooms they need to clearly label when things are sponsored and when they're not newsrooms are very clear about this this is an advertorial and this is the journalism and they are different with the influencers it's not always as clear sometimes you don't know whether you're watching a review on a product or you're watching an advert about the product so i think it's really really important to break that down and be like hey audience you guys love me you trust me so you should know uh iphone have paid for this promo on this iphone mm-hmm. uh that makes a big difference i think the other equation that's been kind of misleading is the followers likes follows have become a commodity uh, on a platform like instagram and on many platforms you can buy them right you can buy followers you can also buy likes you can buy these like farms which generate traction around your social media account and in doing so the metrics which determine success on social media have become uh misleading and you can pay ten thousand dollars to you because you've got a million followers to sell my product and we actually end up seeing very little impact that you weren't as influential as people thought despite you being an influencer and this has come true a few times i mean just recently there was a piece that came out that somebody with a couple million followers they struggled to sell 30 shirts 30 t-shirts right and this goes to show that so i think my, my 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 point here is that we need to measure the quality of somebody's following as opposed to simply that they have a following or not, right? There's different metrics that we need to measure, and it's not simply the number of followers. Uh, but I, I don't think influencer marketing itself is a bad thing, and I, and I fully support people um, generating a living uh, and finding revenue. Because to be honest, on Instagram and Facebook at the moment, Instagram and Facebook are the only people making money. Uh, so if you can find ways to do branded stuff, especially if it's aligned with your values. So take hashtag our stories. Hashtag our stories earns revenue from advertising revenue. We earn branded content and we earn revenue from speaking workshops. The branded content deals that we do have to be aligned with our values. They have to be organizations that are doing social good work and they have to be stories that we would cover anyway. So when we're working with ShopRite and they're doing Africa's biggest cleanup of the beaches, it's a story we would cover anyway. So it kind 
that makes sense to us. We're not going to do a piece on like uh, five reasons why you should try tobacco. Doesn't align with our values. We don't promote smoking, so we're not going to cover that kind of story. Makes sense. Thanks. Good tip. Do you have any mentors? Yeah, for sure. We we have different mentors all the time for different um, parts of the business and, and, and different expertise that we require. Um, I think in a media sense, we, we, we engage quite closely with a lot of um, very powerful minds. Uh, I call back on Mohammed Nanabai all the time yes, yeah. uh, from Media Development Investment Fund, regular conversations about strategy in the media landscape. Um, I speak a lot to Nick Dawes, the former editor of the Mail and Guardian. Speak to him about ethics and principles and guidance on how we can make the right decisions around stories, really tough editorial decisions. I speak to Dima, who's the executive director of AJ Plus, uh, and speak about global expansion and understanding the global media landscape and where we fit within other languages and that kind of context. Uh, so yeah, different mentors for different situations within the organization. Um, it's important. It's important to surround yourself by people that are smart. Answer as quick as possible. Okay. All right. You ready? Are you ready for the lightning round? Okay. This my is one of the like, first thing that comes to your head. My favorite food is... Embarrassing. Favorite food is... Favorite food is butter chicken. Love you. Love is uh, my wife. Leadership is um, being respected, but also kind at the same time. Islam to you mean peace. Love. Oh, you said love, hey? Yeah. Uh, success is individual to yourself, but happiness. Happiness is ultimate success. Contentment. Contentment is peace of mind. Is being comfortable in your own skin. Hashtag our story. Empowering people to tell stories with whatever technology they have access to. What's next for you? World domination, not just. <laughs> um, creating the most diverse mobile, creating the most diverse media company in the world uh, that truly represents the amazing and complex thing which is Earth. Tell us about your Snapchat deal, if you can. About the Snapchat deal. So How did it all come together? We've gone through a really exciting journey and it's not over. We're still hiring. We're kind of like on this rocket ship phase of the company and we were bringing on talent. And when we met last, we met last about a year ago, yeah, yeah. We were a team of two. It was just my wife and I, and it was like a fish and chip shop, you know? We were just <laughs> making videos, creating yeah, videos, yeah, putting yeah. videos out, creating videos, putting videos out. And it was like that kind of relationship. Now we're like a team of 10 full-time people across three continents. And we're uh, some of that was facilitated by an investment from Snap Inc. Um, they uh, invested in Hashtag Our Stories through their uh, accelerator called Yellow. That was so exciting. We got to live in Los Angeles uh, for three months. We got to soak up that startup culture. We got to learn from Hollywood and some of the best directors in the world. Fundamentally, we found a partner in Snap. We make vertical videos about people changing their world. And, and Snap has an audience of young people that care about those kinds of stories. So the ability to publish on that platform is really, really exciting. Um, the most exciting thing that I'm really enjoying is that we're making global stories connect with uh, global audiences. So we're finding a story in South Africa that's relevant to audiences in California. Uh, so lots of people think Americans don't care about the world. They do care about the world if you tell it in the way that they care about it. And in South Africa in particular, South Africa has such interesting stories because we're at the intersection of like inequality and poverty and we have crime and we also have like opportunity and innovation and inspiration and different races. And there's so much happening here that we can share with the world. Um, and that's why it's such a fun, fun place to be working out of. And that's why we set up an office in Joburg this week and we're uh, in Rosebank in a fire yeah. station. Um, nice. It's really cool. And we're, we're, we're now, yeah. So anybody who's watching who wants to get into journalism specifically, wants to get into storytelling and really has an attention to one, fact-checking and, and verification and details of getting things right. We want to get everything right as much as possible. 
and understands young audiences, understands what does a 13 to 24 year old American care about, what shows are they watching, what makes them tick, what taboos are they coming up against. Those are the, if you can, if you're a good journalist who understands young audiences, we want to talk to you. If you join us on our YouTube channel at Hashtag Our Stories, we have 16 videos which take you from a step-by-step guide, 10 minutes each about how to become a mobile journalist. We do this with Austin University in Texas and that's all free. So there's a lot of mobile, I think you took it one stage or you were- Yeah, I, I did your course. You were in the course. Yeah. So like there's lots of course material to get you started. And then we have the Facebook group and this is where you have 2,500 mobile journalists from across 140 countries. Yeah. And this is where you submit your story ideas. You pitch ideas which are then used to, uh, which we then uh, turn into stories. Everyone can pitch ideas, everyone can pitch videos. We then sometimes move forward and then we pay for good stories. Uh, and yeah, you can create a story with us. It's that simple. Anyone can be a reporter, but you'll work closely with the team of journalists that we have to help professionalize, to turn citizen journalism into professional quality videos. So you, how many cities or can, how many countries do you visit so far? We've visited, we've trained communities in over 140 countries, some of them online, some in person. We've probably visited in excess of 100 countries now. Wow. Uh, it's been a sugar, like Amazing. it's been such a, privileged journey to be on mm. um really really i mean the business is changing now i'm going to do less travel and then really focus on the mm. team more the more i'm traveling the harder it is to like you know continue with other projects that we're working on but i think if you see some of the stuff that we've done this week you know, with world vision which is one of our clients to venezuela and uganda uh, sorry to colombia and uganda and trained refugees from north from south sudan and from venezuela Young kids from as young as 12 to tell stories with their phones. And they were just amazing. Mm. Uh, we rolled out six iPhones to these com- communities. Mm. And the stories that came out, they changed my understanding of journalism and the kinds of stories we want to tell. Uh, so we're just getting warmed up. We're having really exciting partnerships discussions now with big media organizations. Uh, before we were like all about our following and let's get everyone talking. Now we're like collaborative. We want to do stuff with accidental Muslims. We want to do stuff with other organizations. We're all about like, how do we knowledge share? How do we share content? Everything we do is copy left. If you see a video you like of ours, you can download it and use it on your own profile. Yeah, we're totally about sharing. The thing is, if you try and be precious about your content, you're like, oh, no one can mm. share it. They're going to download it on WhatsApp and share it anyway. Yeah. So you might as well work with people, get them to tag you, yes. get them to collaborate with you. Um, so that's kind of the, the vision that we're at at the moment. Let's get content everywhere for everyone. I told you a story about the Indian garbage collectors. Yes, you did. You did. But, uh, go for it. Tell them. There was a story about the... Um, I'm trying to think if there's a, if there's one that's perhaps, okay, I'll tell you another one because yeah. you know that one. Yeah, yeah. There was a story of, um, we went to Serbia and we trained a group of refugees how to tell stories there. And there was Afghanis in the room and a bunch of others. And one of the guys we trained, his name was Uzer and he was a refugee who had just turned 16. The thing about, or 17, and the thing about storytelling is you never know when you do the training what stories are going to come out of that. About a month later, he produced a story and the story was about how when you, are over the age of 16 in Serbia. If you're a refugee, you no longer have access to schooling. Okay. He couldn't do grade 11 and 12. And he did this whole story about his last day at school and showing us like uh, the toilets and the classrooms and how they had to write Arabic on all the doors so they could understand where they were in Serbia and how he wanted to keep studying, but he couldn't because the system was designed that when you're 11 and 12, wasn't for refugees, mm-hmm. grade 11 and 12. I would have never commissioned that story. I would have never expected it to come. And yet... Um, was there to this incredibly powerful selfie account. And there was another one where wow. there was this guy named Little Picasso and he was like this like 10 or 11 year old artist also in a refugee camp in Serbia and he used to draw a famous politician Angela Merkel and stuff and he became so famous that the um, leaders, the Prime Minister or President of, 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 of Serbia ended up giving him citizenship to his family because it was all of his... <laughs> Uh, work. So we saw it in the New York Times and they'd done this feature, but they hadn't got any videos of, of Little Picasso because it's hard to get cameras into the camp. 
So we're able to get in touch with him and communicate via email and we gave him a bunch of shots and he filmed those shots and we put them out on social media and we created a little video. Then, uh, about six months ago, I was in Serbia and I got invited to another refugee center. And I walk in and who's the first person I see? Little Picasso. Uh, and he knew me from the online mm. emails and I knew him from the videos he sent in and it was just like this amazing mm. moment. Wow. People connecting online via video and then connecting in real life. Um, favorite destination from mm. uh, Housewife Desperado. Um, so many different favorite locations for different reasons. But I think when I think about escaping from the world, when, when Yusuf Omar is running away and, and you're looking for him, you'll probably find Samir and I starting a little uh, hotel or backpackers in Zanzibar. Oh. Um, it's such an unusual mix of like Portuguese culture and Arabic culture and African culture and Indian culture and all these different occupiers that had left their seeds and sperm in terms of the people mixing. Uh, it's just such an amazing place. Um, so I think Zanzibar is one of my favorite locations. I'm, I'm a beach person. I need to be close to the ocean. I need to be yeah. swimming. Durban is one of my favorite locations, funnily enough. People underestimate Durban. I think it's a fantastic. Uh, South Africa is one of my favorite locations as a country. It's an interesting dynamic place. If we could get rid of the crime, this would yeah. be the number one tourism hotspot of the world. Um, I love Los Angeles. I love living in Los Angeles. Um, I loved Colombia. I'm in love with everywhere I go. <laughs> I, I fall in love way too easily with locations. I want to live and breathe every single place I go to. I think... I'd love to, we could do a whole segment on this, but travel is something many people want to do, but we often do it through such a bubble. We, we want to all stay in the same hotel where the key card opens the same and the room looks the same and we've got the same breakfast that we have back home. If you can try hard to escape that ideal of what travel is and, and open, liberate and open yourself up to the idea that, hey, maybe I won't know where I'm sleeping tonight. Maybe I'll end up at a random person's house. Maybe I'll share a room with 12 other people. Uh, and of course, there's different dynamics for men and women traveling alone, but uh, less certainty, more ambiguity, more risk, more leaving things to the elements, more solo travel. When you travel alone and are forced to meet people, then you yeah. really get to experience travel like I've experienced, where it's, it's totally different experience. Of course, everyone's different and we've got different comfort levels, but force yourself to try and think of a different way of traveling, a way that's cheaper more connected to the places you go and more willing to adapt to the situation. Try not to have too much of a, of a, of a schedule. I'm having this mm. place for lunch and then I'm yeah. catching this bus and then I'm seeing the Eiffel Tower and then I'm going there. I just like to go. Uh, and I'm not too interested in, in landmark sites. I don't need to see the museum. I don't need to see the big list of things. I'm far more interested in the people. I'm far more interested in being invited over for dinner. And um, Amazing, man. Yeah. The thing is, and we've spoken about this before, I think. I can't take any credit for any of this, right? Mm -hmm. I was born into absolute privilege. Went to good schools. Mm -hmm. I have three passports. I have parents that are affluent enough that if everything didn't work out and when... Went to uh, like the Ben, like I would have some, I would have a roof over my head, somebody to stay with, somebody to feed me. And I think it's about recognizing that privilege. So many of us actually do also have privilege, right? We have some safety net. If you have that safety net and you recognize it, then push into that, lean mm -hmm. into that. Say, okay, given that I have that, my, my parents, my dad is a dentist and he did that not necessarily initially because he loved it, but because at that stage, they were poor and they moved to London and you needed a job that would earn a good income. And that's the same for most of our parents. They didn't do what they loved. They did yeah. what they had to do because they had to make a hustle. 
Now our generation are the, one of the first generations of young Muslims that can suddenly dabble in creative, suddenly dabble in the arts, suddenly dabble in media, things that are not certain, things that might work out and might not work out. Um, so in answer to your question about my parents, mm. they were manic travelers. They are manic travelers. They're still nomadic. They travel the whole world. They encourage us to experience things. They, my dad filmed me from day one constantly. What are you doing? What are you doing uh, on camera? <laughs> um, but they also provided that safety net and that cushion so that I could uh, become a journalist as opposed to something more uh, traditional. So that I could leave CNN and be like, hey, I'm going to start my own thing. Yeah. Those leaps of faith are built off the back of the privilege that has been provided by your parents that, that you can fall and, and there'll be somebody to help pick you up again. Appreciate how much harder it is then to try and chase that dream. Mm-hmm. But that just means you've got to do it on the side hustle. That means maybe yeah. your full-time job like you guys is uh, something by day and, and after that, your weekends and your, like today's a weekday, it's a mm-hmm. Wednesday and yet you guys are all hustling uh, at like nine o'clock at night, you're shooting an interview in a random hotel. Uh, because that's the hustle. That's like, okay, I'm not 100% fulfilled with my 95 job, but I'm going to use the, ex- I'm going to add an additional 20% where everyone else is sleeping, where everyone else is chilling, and I'm going to use that to drive my passion. And slowly that, that shift happens where you can say, okay, now my passion is now making revenue. My passion is now bigger, 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 bigger. Um, I would love, this is another question, but I would love everyone to get into a position where they can work under their own times and their own space for themselves where possible. It's the most liberating. Now I'm in a position where I can work from anywhere in the world where there's internet and coffee. I can um, work wherever I want, whenever I want. I don't have leave. And that is becoming the mainstream, right? Slowly but surely, 95s are dying. Everyone's moving to the gig economy. We're all becoming freelancers. We're all going to be working on particular assignments. If you're a designer, you're going to pick up a design assignment with this client, this client, this client. The sooner that you can start getting into that space, the sooner you can start learning to itemize your skill set and cost it appropriately, the sooner you can start uh, finding clients and, and, and invoicing individuals, the sooner you can start being in demand as an individual as opposed to as part of a broader organization, the sooner you can free yourself from the nine to five cycle and really be closer to doing what you love. But in order to do that, you're going to have to make some sacrifices. You have to work out how much do I really need? How much can I survive on? Uh, how far, how long is my runway? How long can I hustle before I need to go back to full-time employment? Um, for as long as I can afford to, we will continue to do it this way. It's, in a global landscape, Syria was the most dangerous. Working in Syria, covering the war, was horrendous. Mortar and artillery and rockets firing and going to sleep at night with bombs launched, landing not far away from you and not having a clue when the next one's going to land on you. And you go great. You go stressed. You have no control over your life. My translator died. The guy whose house I stayed at died. It's a horrendous. War zones are like nothing you can possibly describe. Um, so Syria, Syria was oh. and probably still is one of the most dangerous places in the world right now. Yeah. Islamically, there's a there's a sort of uh, it's a hadith or at least a principle that when you see um, an injustice, the first thing that you can do is you can feel that it's wrong. Are you familiar with this yeah, hadith? Yeah. Uh, hadith. And the second <clears throat> thing you can do is you can say something about something. And the third thing you can do is you can do something about something. And I think dealing with our emotions of the tragedies that we witness, journalists are kind of in that first and second bracket. We are um, feeling that something is wrong, so we're identifying a story, and we are saying something is wrong. We are uh, bringing it to your attention, and we are creating awareness around it. And I think to some extent in doing that, we are also fixing what's wrong. So I think if you frame your role in society within those buckets of, 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 of identifying issues, speaking about them, doing something about them, then it helps you manage your emotions uh, better. Um, 
Nasreen or N4SR3EN. Nasreen. Uh, how does spreading stories and creating, uh, hey guys, how does spreading stories and creating awareness directly impact those in need? And what can people do to protect, to help uh, places that are off the radar? How does spreading stories and creating awareness directly impact those in need? And what can people do to help place those people off on the radar? Okay, so in response to what does the stories do to achieve change? If we take, for example, the model whereby the first story identifies an issue, uh, the second story uh, brings the issue to the local authorities' attention, and the third story corrects that issue, which is a model that's been executed in India by video volunteers and a bunch of other organizations. That is a really effective way of bringing about change. So we're an Indian community and the first video story we're going to do is say, hey, there's a pothole in our street and it's causing car crashes. Fix it, fix it, fix it. That's video number one. Video number two is, hey, you're the local mayor. Look at this video of the pothole. Look, look, look. That's video number two of them documenting that interaction. Video number three is mayor coming back and saying, hey, we fixed your pothole. So in the most literal sense, that's how storytelling and video storytelling can impact. Mm -hmm. And it starts with the realization that the video camera is the greatest witness account of things that are taking place. If there is a Black Lives Matter, um, if, if, if somebody's gunned down at the hands of police brutality in the US, and you've got the police officer's account of what's happened, and you've got the account of the wife who's just witnessed their husband being gunned down. The video then is evidence. So in answer to, to Nasreen's question is how does stories create awareness? It's a witness account of what's happening around. It's the ability to inspire people to bring about change. Um, and how can we help these people uh, from getting off the radar? How, it, that's a good question because that's a story about how do we amplify voice? How do we ensure that the Indian pothole story reaches the right people in the same way that the Kim Kardashian's reach on a timeline or the funny cat video or the foodie video or the accidental Muslims videos. Um, and in answer to that, it's about creating engagement, creating highly engaging content that people have conversations around that is incredibly shareable. Everything we do to bring things to the, your radar is about shareability and emotional triggers. So we need to understand Nasreen is, you guys know Nasreen? Well, Nasreen is a Cape Tonian. She's 17 years old and she's interested in the spring box. So we know these things. So we're like, okay, how do we engineer the story so that it's relevant to Nasreen as an audience and that she'll share it? Well, we know Nasreen likes stories about um, dolphins. She cares a lot about dolphins. Cool, let's do a story about how dolphins are eating plastic and blah, 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 and let's get that to her attention. And that then brings that community up to her timeline. Amazing. So last question. Yeah. Tell us about this. Tell us about, Tell us about this. I'm wearing Snapchat spectacles. If I bring this forward to your audience. You guys can see I've got a bright flashing light here to let you know I'm recording and I've got a camera here and I'm videoing you right now. How does it work? It's effectively wearable cameras, right? And it speaks to the future where we are all wearing wearable technology, where we don't interact with the world through a phone here or through a laptop, but we engage with the world here. And I see information, I film information, I can see your LinkedIn bio in a future edition, right? I can see directions. Um, the really cool things about these that I really like, apart from it being really discreet or being able to have a conversation without having to look through a screen and interact with you, is the idea of circular video. So when I film with these uh, glasses, the video is round, which means I can watch it in landscape or vertical in any aspect ratio. Um, so that's really, really interesting because it means we can orientate it for uh, television or for, you know, stories format. Um, so, crazy. yeah, it is crazy. It's cool. And I'm interested in this. I'm interested in virtual reality, 360 video, all of these different technologies. 
Because when you look past the gimmicks, you see incredibly liberating, empowering tools which we can enable. I mean, we've used these glasses on, on human trafficking survivors, young women that have been forced into prostitution in Abu Dhabi. We were able to put the glasses on them mm-hmm. and they could tell a story through their eyes. Um, we're in Cape Town. We're here till Friday. Everyone who's watching, come say hello. Let's hang out. Let's tell stories together. Uh, I'm keen to have a meetup to meet as many people as possible while we're in town. Last piece of advice. 20 seconds. What will he, what will he tell us? <clears throat> the greatest skill that you can have is the ability to acquire more skills. The greatest skill that you can have is the ability to acquire more skills. The world is changing incredibly fast. The jobs that are here today won't be there in the next 10 years. And the jobs that will be around in 10 years are not even heard of today. They don't even have a title. We don't even know what industries they'll be in. Probably in the intersection of augmented reality and artificial intelligence and a whole bunch of other forms of machine learning. But jobs are changing and most of them are being automated. So the greatest skill you can have is the ability to keep learning new skills so that you can be like, hey, I'm a chemical engineer today, but I'm going to do IT tomorrow and I'm going to become a a videographer the next day or I'm going to do this and this and this. You've got to be a slasher. You've got to be a slasher generation. I'm a DJ slash imam slash uh, environmentalist. Um, That's the only way you're going to be relevant. So keep being learning, keep adopting new skills. We are only relevant if we're not just working on mobile journalism, but working on wearable journalism and the next journalism and finding out what's what's coming. So the greatest ability is the ability to acquire more skills. Yes, Imar, the next time you're on the podcast, you won't be plan C. You'll definitely mm. be plan A. Yes. Thanks a lot. <laughs> that's, that's, that's all I've ever wanted to hear. Thanks to everyone that's watching on Instagram, guys. I really appreciate it. Assalamualaikum. So that's it for today's show. We hope we added value. We hope you enjoyed it. But most of all, we hope our guests is inspired you to live with purpose. Don't forget to send us your suggestions via info at accidentalmuslims.com. If you know anybody out there that is inspiring, that's leading, that's living with purpose, please uh, do contact us. And remember, feedback is our oxygen. So follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I hope you enjoyed. God bless. Assalamu alaikum.